Some of you this morning here may be familiar with a local uh, Christian recording artist who's been uh, performing and recording for a long time. Uh, I was going back and calculating when I was first introduced to this person. And it was one of those situations where, you know, when you tell people that, you know, it was about 10 years ago and it turns out to be about 30 years ago. Uh, some of you have had that experience. It's a humbling experience. But you might know the name Timothy James Meany. And Meany's uh, music was popular at a camp that I worked at back in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, and I remember we used to sing uh, uh, some of his songs uh, in chapel. And then it also was part of the soundtrack uh, that we used for the end-of-the-week camp videos. I remember one particular song that showed up quite often on those videos. In fact, it was showed up so often because uh, we ran two camps a week. Uh, that you would have to watch two weekend, you know, videos with the same song playing. You got really familiar with the song. Live My Life was the name of the song. And it went like this. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to ruin your morning. I know some of you had a light breakfast. I don't want to ruin that meal for you. I want to live my life following you. Following you. I want to live my life following you following you. Now you know why the song kind of stuck with you, right? <laughs> Additional verses go on to include living for you, loving you, and knowing you. And so easy to remember lyrics. Uh, the corresponding tune wasn't hard to carry. It was easy to remember. And of course, repetition. The mother of memory, the father of boredom. All these ingredients, of course, uh, allow the tune to stick into someone's personal playlist, whether they want it to or not. And of course, if the sentiment itself matches your own inclinations, all the better. What a powerful song. What a powerful words to, to imprint on your heart and to remember. I want to live my life following you, to have that as your personal playlist. But how exactly does one go about following Christ? How does one do that? What shape does that take? What does that look like? There is, of course, a yes at some point when Jesus calls out to each one of us and says, come and follow. There's a yes that's taken in both voice and steps. But what exactly does the day-to-day -day look like? And how do we measure ourselves to know that we ourselves are on the right track? Well, there's a quote that's been making the rounds on the Internet. And believe it or not, this will help us at some level. Uh, it's attributed to Albert Einstein, but it's one of those quotes that's probably not from Albert Einstein. In fact, it's a, a paraphrase of sorts, and which fits nicely with the quote itself. Supposedly, Albert Einstein once said, make everything simple as possible, but not simpler. Of course, there's a longer quote that's drawn from, so the quote itself is a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. So Paul, yeah, some of you guys are like, don't worry, it'll, it'll get too soon. So Paul's going to go on, and he's going to do this with at least three metaphors. He's going to get simple with us here. He's going to answer that question, how do you live a life following Christ? And he uses these three simple metaphors here. He talks about a citizen, he talks about a soldier, and he talks about an athlete. And Paul, of course, will use at least two of those many times throughout the New Testament. But he uses a citizen, soldier, and athlete. But for those who want simple, take a look at the start of verse 27. See how the passage begins. Only. Starts with only. That's another way of saying, here's the essential thing. It's another way of saying, let me stress this one thing. So what you're about to see, I'm going to stress this essential piece, this core element that you need to live into. This is an imperative to, to live this way, to be these type of people. 
And what's being stressed is this. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, of course, the metaphors fill in how this should look. So let's start with the metaphors here. Metaphor number one, the citizen. It's easy to miss this one when you read the passage. It's not as clear for us in English when we read through the text, particularly in our our translation that we have uh, this morning. And certainly not all scholars agree on this. But the underlying word here uh, is a word that comes to us through history. It has a, a piece at the beginning where we get the, uh, the word polis from, or when we think about a city, um, that, that type of Greek word that's built into and baked into this word. And our translation draws upon this particular word, this sense of identity with a city or citizenship, uh, and it uses this idea of living your life in a manner that is worthy to uh, a general idea or conducting oneself as a pledge to the law of life. But historically, uh, it finds its origin in the responsibility one would have as a citizen. One's civic duty is how we would, would put it. And that word is, is packed that way, and it's unusual for us here because Paul will talk about the Christian walk at other places in his writings, but he uses this word uniquely here in this context. Perhaps he's intending Uh, to be using this in a nuanced way so that we can unpack some things that are going on in Philippi at the time. Scholars have observed as they've looked at the history and the background here uh, that there might be in this some political overtones that Paul is trying to raise up into the consciousness of this audience. That the local persecution that he's facing and perhaps they too are facing, that he wants his audience to endure in that, to do their civic duty not for the city that they're in, but their civic duty for the kingdom to which they belong. Not for Caesar, but rather for Christ. Or there's the possibility that other scholars have noted that this text might be also pointing to a religious identity kind of in the Jewish sense. This idea of being the people of God and being faithful to your calling. Your calling as that people and how you might act and the consequences that come from those actions. Both would certainly provide a countering voice to a community that we've already talked about in this series, one that uplifted this sense of honor and lifted up this sense of, of imperial belonging, being part of this empire from which so many had benefited from, and saying that your allegiance, your citizenship, is to another place. It doesn't mean you're going to raise up and start destroying buildings and attacking people and that sort of thing, but it says that in whatever you might face, whatever comes your way, that you belong to another people, and that should be setting the navigational coordinates for you. So that's the idea of the citizen that Paul raises up here, and it certainly would play a powerful note to the many veterans in that community, which we know Philippi was filled with, folks that had an invested interest in the empire because they had literally bled and sweated for that empire. What a word that would have been in that first century. Of course, he doesn't forget them because the next metaphor of the soldier is an important one. Paul adds here that to your civic duty, this picture of military service. And of course, this apostle is no stranger to using this kind of imagery when he talks about the Christian faith. He says, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit. This idea of standing firm, of course, draws on and conveys the idea of being firm and steadfast. And you just imagine here the ranks of soldiers who are in battle, who are unflinching. This courage to stand there when all is coming against them. When they face absolute opposition. When 
the enemy is coming towards them, that they stand as one unit, shoulder to shoulder, ready to take things on, no matter how bad they get. That's a real courage and a real kind of strength that draws from a real-world experience, again, for many of those who would have been in the city of Philippi. And Paul says here that in this way, you together will be in the trenches. Now, some of us here may not have served in, in the military. I've never served in the military. I've not uh, been in that type of setting or in that kind of combat. So we see far lesser places where we experience what it looks like for us to be in the trenches together. Maybe you, you've served on a, a group at work, working together, like I said, a far lesser type thing. Maybe at school or on a sports team where you've been in the trenches together working on a project. This is where this metaphor kind of builds this, this sense of facing opposition together and doing it in rank. Of course, the, uh, the third image that will be used here by Paul is one that is the athlete. And again, one that he's not a stranger to. It shows up in other places in his writing. And it's, uh, it's probably about as familiar as the soldier imagery for us as we read through Paul's use of athletics. So he employs this, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And this idea of being of one mind is working as a team. This being side by side, it's that imagery of athletes and a team uh, that is, that's going out, not just in a military rank kind of way, but working towards one purpose. Not as individuals, but as one person, a unit that comes with one mind, one heart, one goal. I remember as a kid, I was participating uh, in a, a boys' uh, camping weekend that our church was hosting with a lot of uh, different area churches, and there was a tug-of-war competition. I don't know if I had to go get water or something for the camp, because I somehow missed out on being on the tug-of-war team, which would have been great, so I had to watch it uh, from afar. And I remember standing there, and our team was small. Like, not small like in the numbers of people, but just small people at the time. We get out there, and we were a scrawny bunch. And I remember cheering on, my, a couple of my brothers were on the, in the tug-of-war tug group there. And they get out there, and these other groups, I don't know what they were feeding them over at the other churches. They must have had larger portions at the communion table. Because they were hulking large bunches that came in. And I remember one team after another coming up against that scrawny, skinny, little team and losing. One match after another. And the difference maker was a lot of volume that came from the little team, but it was one that brought them together on one. They pulled as one team, as one person, while the bigger groups, a lot of individuals, tried to, to go forward and be the champion for their team. And they lost because of it. And so that's the picture we have here of folks working side by side of one mind and the victory that can be had there. Perhaps you have your own story where you've seen people win or achieve things together with impossible odds, but still win because they work together as one group. When you pull together like that, when you come as a citizen and you recognize your civic responsibility, when you stand as a soldier that's firmly positioned or an athlete that's striving together with your teammates. Verse 28, the oppressors look far less intimidating. They look far less intimidating. Add to this one's identity, and they're identifying in the suffering of Christ. How that doesn't nullify one's Christian experience. 
but rather in a very mysterious way, it confirms it. The very way of Jesus that we see in verse 29. That together is a powerful kind of confidence. That's the kind of confidence where you can stand up against all kinds of opposition and you can withstand all kinds of odds. Now, if you're a pet owner, how many people are pet owners here? And pet owners here? I have a dog. All right. Uh, anybody a weird pet owner? Not you. Your pet's weird. All right. Okay, good, good. I should have I clarified that ahead of time before anybody outed themselves. Uh, like snakes and lizards and that sort of thing. But if you're a pet owner, have you ever done this? I've done this, and I'm a little ashamed to admit it, where you snuck up on your pet while you're an adult. <laughs> from time to time, I'll sneak up on my dog just to see what he'll do. I hide from him. I get home and hide, hide in closets and stuff just to see. And every once in a while, he, he's oblivious that I'm there. He should probably get his ears checked. But I'll come up behind him, and I'll touch him, and he'll flinch. And he'll get rattled. And maybe you've had a similar experience where you've, you've maybe not snuck up on your, your pet, but you've scared them. They've gotten startled. Well, the picture here that we have in this text, uh, the word that's used here in verse 28, in classical Greek, it relates to startling horses, being startled, scared. Animals get all jumpy. They find themselves at high alert. They become uneasy. Not so for the community of believers. That's not the people Paul is calling this church to be. Rather, they are people who relate side by side so we're not easily startled. So what does that mean to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? What, is it, what does that all mean? I want to live my life following you. What does that look like? What does it mean for to live in a worthy fashion? Now, around the time I was listening to Timothy James Meany, there was a popular series of sketches on Saturday Night Live. Now, if you weren't already dating me based on the other reference, either I'm too young or I'm too old, I'm somewhere in the middle there. I guess that's why they called it the middle age, right? <laughs> Thing called Wayne's World. Does anybody remember Wayne's World? Party on, excellent, right? Okay, you got it? There's a couple of movies that came out of that. Uh, there's Wayne and Garth, of course. And in one of the movies, they're invited to spend time with Alice Cooper. You can spend with Alice Cooper. Who wants to spend time with Alice Cooper? That'd be kind of cool, right? Spend some, some of you are like, no way, man. Alice Cooper. They got to spend time with Alice Cooper. And they, of course, famously did what they've done before in the sketch. They say, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And they're on their face bowing down, which, of course, led to all kinds of copying and references uh, if you want a glimpse of my life in the 90s, I had a lot of friends saying they're not worthy for some reason over the couple years because of that influence. That's not the sense of the particular idea here of worthy. This isn't a hierarchy that you'd imagine. You'd say, okay, there's different levels here uh, that we have to live up to. Or, or maybe there's a certain identity that you, that you don't quite get, you don't quite deserve it. That's not the way worthy is being used here. But rather, to borrow a title from the late Francis Schaeffer, in answering that question, how then should we live, the idea of worthy is the way that we conduct ourselves. It's, a, it's the behavior we have. And I, I know the King James here, if you ever go back and read verse uh, 27, it uses the word instead of conduct, it talks about conversation. But back when the King James was written, conversation, part of its meaning included conduct and behavior. And so that was part of the word meaning at the time that's now obsolete. 
But the idea of worthy here is a sense that we live into a life that reflects, that's appropriate to what the gospel is calling us to, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, that gospel includes the very real possibility of suffering. And so we take on what it looks like for Jesus Christ. We take on that same life that Jesus said, take up your cross. And Jesus meant it when he said that. William Barclay here paints a a picture for us of what this, this all looks like for us as we bring it together as far as how our lives might look. In writing this, Barclay says, In Roman colonies, the Roman citizens never forgot that they were Romans. They spoke the Latin language, wore the Latin dress, called their magistrates by the Latin names, insisted on being stubbornly Roman, however far they might be from Rome. And having visited Morocco, I I saw some Roman ruins there. And basically it's a miniature Rome in Morocco that they built it to look exactly what they would imagine for their people to be. Barclay goes on to say, uh, identify Paul's message in this, in saying, wherever you are, you must live as befits a citizen of the kingdom of God. You must never forget the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship, not this time of Rome, but of the kingdom of God. Commentator Walter Hansen would say it this way, the gospel provides the motive and the pattern for all Christian behavior. That who we are is to be modeled and shaped by the life, by the death, by the resurrection and the triumph of Jesus Christ. That that message of good news is to shape us as people. And that life is to be lived in whatever context we find ourselves in, in that way. So if you're at school, you're to model your life after the gospel of Christ. If you're at work or at home, you're part of a community group, you're in the neighborhood, every aspect of our lives are to be painted in that picture, to look like that. We do well to use that as a place to ponder and consider, and to ask the question regularly, how might my life look like the gospel of Christ here and now in what I'm doing? Even when confronted by teams of apparently greater size and presumably greater strength, like those folks at the tug-of-war, we too in our own life, when confronted by similar challenge, greater strength challenges, greater struggles, we're to live our lives according to the gospel. In this congregation and here in this community, holiness and humility are very much partners in our lives as Christians but also our connection to one another. I was reading this past week from a theologian and retired Methodist minister who lives in the UK. Uh, His name's Inderjit Vogel, and he he writes uh, this about the letter of Philippians. He says, "Uh, Philippians insists that we are to live our life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, but also that we are to live side by side, not by ourselves. That's why we're part of the community of the followers of Jesus with the mind that was in Christ. This is the mind that Charles Wesley says is emptied of all but love. It will not be a life without difficulty, opposition, or conflict, but it will be a life that is not intimidated by opponents. For some here this morning, that line, emptied of all but love, may sound familiar. 
certainly from Wesley, but do you know where it comes from, Wesley? It comes from a song. Many of us call these hymns. It's, and can it be that I should gain? When I was a freshman in college, my professor, my Christian doctrine professor, had us memorize a series of hymns that we had to sing at the start of class, and this was one of them. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And it's in verse 3 that we hear that familiar line from Wesley. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Friends, this morning as we consider Paul's words and we continue to ponder these words in Philippians here in worship and we continue in this service, we hear these words of the one who emptied himself of all but love. And knowing that our lives are to be modeled after the gospel of Christ. And knowing that strategically this series has been called Emptied for a reason. That we too are called to live a life of humility, to be humble to one another. We see that in the first five verses of chapter 2, but even as we read through the remainder of chapter 2. We're called to be emptied of all things. You might say, hey, well, where's my status? Where's the benefit for me? Where's the thing where I make my name great? Where's the part where I stroke my ego? Where does that go? Jimmy, what are you leaving me with? How could I possibly live that kind of life? What is left for us? Yeah, it works for Jesus, but how would it work for me? The beauty, of course, is that everything is gone. We lay it before the feet of Jesus. We offer it to Christ as an expression of our love for God and in our love for one another. And all that remains is this. The line tells it, love, that's all that remains. And friends, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? A life molded by and a modeled upon that. Jesus Christ, Christ's gospel, and love. Maybe so for our generation this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.